Hello, welcome to Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund, UNCDF. I am your host, David McHale. If you are listening to this podcast, welcome. This is the inaugural airing of UNCDF's Capital Musings podcast. Um, If you are listening to this podcast today, then we presume it's because you probably care about the issues that define our day-to-day work global poverty, reducing gross economic inequality, confronting climate change, achieving the SDGs. And maybe you're interested in all of these things and you're interested in seeing some risk-adjusted returns as well, particularly for our impact investors, who we hope will be close and consistent listeners to our podcast. That is why we've launched our podcast. Um, We want to provide a platform that connects you to the people who are driving impact and change on local, national, and global scales. And that definitely does include many people who provide their work every day to UNCDF. Hardworking, brilliant, committed people, from those who are elevating and supporting local economic development finance, to those activating financial inclusion, to those looking to shift investment capital flows to LDCs. But to be clear, we want this podcast to also be a platform for external guests as well, guests that represent a broad array of organizations, investment institutions, companies, and government. So with that, I'd like to introduce my guest. And my guest today is Esther Pan Sloan. She is head of partnerships, policy, and communications with UNCDF. Prior to joining UNCDF, Esther was a US diplomat for 10 years as advisor at the permanent mission of the United States to the United Nations in New York. She was on the U.S. team that negotiated the 2030 Agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. She also served on the executive boards of UNDP, UNICEF, UNOPS, and UNFPA. Esther previously served as a diplomat in China and the United Kingdom, as well as at the State Department Operations Center in Washington. And prior to joining the U.S. Foreign Service, Esther worked as a journalist in print, radio, and magazines. It is a pleasure to have you here today as our inaugural guest. Thanks so much, David. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. So let's just get right to it. I'm going to start basically with a number. And the number is quadrillion, a quadrillion dollars. And the reason I reference that number is that according to Bain & Company, global financial assets could easily surpass a quadrillion dollars by 2025. And The reason I bring that up is because we constantly talk about the finance gap as it relates to SDGs, a finance gap that at an annual level comes to about five to seven trillion dollars. So it would seem that what we're talking about to a certain extent is almost a rounding error relative to global financial markets, or at least that's how it would seem. I'm going to hear your thoughts on that, but just from the outset, what is the challenge here? Is it a challenge in terms of a lack of incentives for institutional investors to get into these investments? Is it a lack of the right regulatory policy ecosystem to drive those investments? Or is it all of the above? Is it that we don't necessarily have the tools for investors who would be very interested in investing in SDGs, but they don't necessarily have the tools at their disposal? So where are the driving challenges in this regard? Great. Well, thanks for the question. I mean, I think it's fun to start with a number like quadrillion because I don't even know how many dollars that is. (laughs) And I think for a lot of the beneficiaries that we serve in least developed countries, that's how they feel about a thousand dollars, right? That it's this 
enormous number that's out there, even to say billions or to say trillions, that doesn't mean anything to a woman who's trying to feed her family. She just needs $10 or $5 or $1, right? She needs $2 for school fees on June 2nd. And that's the number that she's trying to reach. So I think when you look at these global funding flows, there's plenty of money in the world in the same way that there's plenty of food in the world, right? There's no reason that people should be hungry because there's plenty of food to feed them. It's a question of what are the distribution and production systems that get the food to the places where they're needed and why are there inequalities where some people in the world are very fat and other people are starving. And I think that's an apt analogy for the financial systems where there are plenty of the resource that we say we need, which is money, but it is not getting to the places where it can do the most good. And some people have far too much of it and some people have not enough. So one of the problems that we're trying to solve at UNCDF is exactly along all of those dimensions that you uh, mentioned, pipeline, structuring, deals, regulation, what are the systemic bottlenecks that are preventing this massive amount of money that we know that exists in the world from reaching that woman who needs $2 to pay school fees. And there are many, right? There's corruption, there's lack of government systems to effectively transfer resources to localities where people can access it or where it can build infrastructure that supports the poorest people. There are barriers to banking outreach and financial inclusion. There are, you know, there's the profit motive of for-profit companies that are looking to make returns and they don't see poor people as prevent uh, providing them good returns so there are all of these barriers at all of these levels structural international financial system very localized in terms of which bank has a um, a branch in this rural region or who has established a digital network where they can or cannot use cell phones to pay for things all of those barriers exist so the question for an organization like the UN Capital Development Fund is what can we as one small focused organization do to pragmatically break down barriers at each of those levels and work within the integrated international financial and development architecture to address all of those barriers at all of those levels in the most effective way. What are the architectural flaws that exist right now that are preventing capital flows into SDG investments? Uh, so there are a couple. Uh, one is that uh, it's very hard to define an SDG investment. There's no uniform standard to say what type of return producing investment vehicle or deal or entity qualifies as being SDG positive. So what we're seeing, and you know, on one level it's terrific that financial sector entities are taking the sustainable development goal seriously, and that they're responding to customer demand to have products where uh, pension funds and other investments for individuals as well as institutions can be aligned to the SDGs. Uh, we hear from both countries and governments and individuals that there's a huge demand from especially millennials and women to say, I want my money invested in something that's doing good and I want to pay for my secure retirement with assets that I know are not destroying the planet or putting people out of work or contributing to global poverty or global inequality. So the demand is there. What we see is that the supply side is more questionable, where there is now a proliferation of investment vehicles and products that call themselves SDG aligned 
and there's no uniform standard. So anybody can call themselves SDG aligned. You know, we've talked with financial companies who have mapped the sustainable development goals against kind of five broad areas of activity, like life and industry right. and water. And they're saying now half of our portfolio is SDG aligned, you know, and you're like, well, those are pretty broad categories, <laughs> you know, right. um, and there's not a standard. So everything is self-reporting. So essentially you have many actors essentially creating their own report cards and then writing their own grades. So it would be productive for everybody if we had some more rigorous definitions of what is and is not SDG aligned so that we can move towards more rigor and discipline in the industry. From our perspective as the United Nations, what we want to see is a legitimate and verifiable and measurable impact towards helping particularly poor countries achieve the sustainable development goals. So if you're investing in wind farms in Denmark, that's a wonderful investment for climate achievement. You could say it has an impact on achieving the climate SDG, but if it's not helping one of the poorest countries achieve their climate SDG, it will not help the entire world achieve the SDGs. The LDCs are really the crucible where the SDGs will be you know, won or lost or achieved or, f or failed. So we think, especially at the UN Capital Development Fund, because poor, the poorest countries in the world are our specific focus and our mandate is to work there, we think that the 47 poorest countries deserve the most attention, the most focus, and that this is where the, the most critical funding gap is, where that investment funding, SDG aligned or ESG aligned or however you want to call it, is definitively not reaching these countries and that's where the need is the greatest. So, I mean, that lends to Number one, I think reductively what we've come to is kind of the conversation regarding what some might call greenwashing or whether they're just using SDGs for the purposes of marketing. How does, how does the existence of that kind of questionable or maybe not wholly impactful SDG investments, how does that presence impact other investors and other vehicles that are really trying to drive SDG positive investments? Well, what we'd like to see is a really clear line drawn between investments that are impactful, particularly in these developed countries, and ones that aren't. Because essentially we don't want entities or companies to get credit for something they're not doing, right? We don't want them to lie to their customers and say we are helping to eradicate poverty when they're just creating profits the same way they always have been. We also don't want everyone to feel good about themselves that they are doing these things that are so impactful if there's really no impact. Right, so I think there we just come back to the evidence base. It's the same as the argument in development, right? You, you can give money to an organization and feel good that you are contributing to charity, but if you dig into the results of what that entity is doing with your funding, it is either having an impact that measurably transforms someone's life and helps them leave poverty in a sustainable way, or not. So mm -hmm. I think in the same way, you know, we're trying to bring that frame to impact investing so that consumers have rigorous evidence-based standards by which they can judge what products are being offered to them in the market and they can make an informed choice. And then the consumer demand for legitimate impactful products that actually help fight and eradicate poverty, we hope will help the market go in that direction. What are the dominant trends that you're seeing in terms of ODA and what are the drivers of those trends? Things that we hear the most from developing countries are that we need funding in the form in which we can use it so not tied to a specific provider of food or a specific you know, national entity from the giving country. And we need technical assistance, right? We need capacity building to teach our officials how to collect taxes, prevent money going offshore, 
deliver infrastructure, build services, all of these things. So the two things they need are money in a form that they can use and skills. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a question of volume. It's a question of how you are targeting that to meet the need of the recipient. Sure. Well, then in that regard, digital financial services, digital financial tools are going to be critical to that pursuit. And I know based on conversations we've had in the past that, and to the point you just alluded to a couple minutes ago, that the goal is market development to basically create the environment where you can crowd in DFS providers. What are DFS providers, what are the biggest challenges that they see that would make them skittish about entering a market? And this is digital financial services? Yeah. I think, you know, banks or mobile phone operators do not naturally see poor people as a market. Right? If you are a business development person for a phone company, you don't look at the millions of people with no telephones and say, that's where I'm going. I lived in South Africa for a few years, and it was very interesting there that because cell phones were a luxury for the middle classes in the Western world, people thought that they would not take off in the developing world because there weren't enough wealthy people. In fact, it was poor people who bought cell phones first because they're the ones who are the farthest away from landlines, right. who spend most of their time traveling, who have the greatest need to be in touch with relatives who don't have a fixed address. And so as soon as people could buy a set amount on a SIM card and put it in their phone with prepaid cards, they took off like wildfire. So the phone companies had been taking an outdated kind of business model from a certain segment of society, which was Western middle and upper middle class countries and trying to just apply it blindly to developing countries it doesn't work but it turns out that they're making lots of money off of millions of poor people who have cell phones and they use prepaid cards so one of the things that UNCDF does that's quite creative is helps for-profit entities see where the market is in serving the poor that you can create an e-wallet that poor people can save a dollar or less in every day using their cell phone and the bank can make a profit on that right that you can allow people to pay for their solar panels by topping off their cell phone credits and that's a viable way for you as a solar panel provider to get paid for your services so there are a lot of interesting and creative market solutions that come from the societies in which we work so for example east africa is a world leader in digital payments right and many other countries and regions around the world are copying uh, tools that have been pioneered in Kenya and Tanzania and Uganda for how to get digital payments to a wide range of customers who are not necessarily middle-class customers. So our job at UNCDF is to make private sector entities see markets where there are poor people and also to make sure that as these business ecosystems are developed and these market systems are developed that the poor are not being left behind. That it's not then a market where only upper middle class and wealthy people can make bank transfers, but that poor people can also access it and they can make those transfers as well. Sure. It's fascinating, particularly given the mission of UNCDF, and I'll go a step further and say, particularly given the stakeholders that UNCDF has to engage with in order to advance its mission, because you're dealing with obviously members of the private sector, businesses, institutional investors, and obviously you're also dealing with government donors. And I guess I'm kind of curious, more from just an institutional cultural standpoint, what's the gaps between those two in terms of how one is thinking about economic development versus the other? And, and how do you bridge those gaps? Well, I think diplomats learn to speak many languages, and I think those are different worlds that speak different languages. So the UN is a very... Um, idealistic entity. You know, you'll find that our colleagues working in the United Nations system really believe in fighting poverty. That's that's 
a mission they grew up with. That's something they, re they really wanted to work on. And people who go to business school are trained to make money, right? So there's a, there's a, a different language and a focus and uh, an emphasis there. That doesn't mean there aren't business people who really care about social outcomes, and it also doesn't mean that, that UN people are kind of woolly-headed do-gooders, right? That there's quite a lot of overlap as well between the work of the two. And I think one of UNCDF's jobs is to translate what it means to say a development crowd, which is focusing on things like gender equality and impact indicators and results reporting, how to communicate to them this imperative that your work must earn money. Mm -hmm. And then how to communicate to a business crowd that your work can make money while still helping people and that there are pragmatic ways to do it that the UN has pioneered and tested in many of the countries where we work where they may not have experience. So I do think it's a matter of translation and lessons learning between the two fields because you know, finance, investors, um, for-profit businesses are have incredibly creative tools for spreading their products, you know, expanding their businesses, building on their value chains. The UN has amazing tools for tracking impact, assessing if people's lives have changed and supporting government. So it's a question of how do we bring the best of each sector you know, translating so they understand each other and don't have maybe outdated uh, stereotypes. And we can then find the space in the Venn diagram where we overlap, our motives are the same, and we can work together. Sure. sure. I think one issue that has really aligned a critical mass of governments and the private sector is women's economic empowerment. As, and I would add women and youth economic empowerment. And it's easy to talk about how to, easy to talk, less to implement, but if we were talking about creating economic opportunities and to bridge the gender gap insofar as economic empowerment in developed countries, I think people would have a, a decent sense of what that would look like. And so much of that conversation surrounds pay equity and things of that nature and addressing both the glass ceiling and the glass cliff. In developing countries, I think for a lot of people, probably, if not definitely including myself, it's not as clear. So what does a women's economic empowerment program look like in countries where I can assume, but assume safely, that there are distinct cultural barriers? Obviously, there are governmental barriers, and there are probably barriers insofar as the infrastructure that drives growth and how that could adversely impact women. So what does that l empowerment look like in developing countries? Well, I think the, the overall themes are the same, right? The way you empower women is by giving them access to jobs, education, and finance. So in Norway, for example, I heard a Norwegian speaker recently at the, the UN, she said the active economic engagement of women in the economy of Norway is worth more than oil and gas. Wow. And that's in Norway. Yeah. So imagine what it would be like in Somalia or Ethiopia or Tunisia. So I think there's been a push towards economic empowerment of women and youth because these are sectors that have historically been underinvested in and there's massive return on that investment, right? That when a woman has access to a job or education or savings, the well-being of her entire family improves and it often improves for multiple generations. So you can immediately say that a dollar invested here has more impact than a dollar invested somewhere else. 
So that's been the focus. And in developing countries, there are unique challenges. And of course, it depends on the individual country. But there are restrictive laws, for example, preventing women from owning land or inheriting resources. There's unequal access to finance. There's safety issues. There are cultural barriers about women working outside the home. So the question is, in each specific context, how do we make it easier for women to access the things they need? Sure. Jobs, education, finance. And in one country, it could be building a road to the market that doesn't flood, so women can take their goods to the market in all seasons. In another, it could be building a marketplace that has a bathroom, so a woman can use it safely and not feel threatened when she's there. It could be having a childcare space so that she can bring her child with her to the market and stay there all day and sell her goods. It could be helping a woman access a loan so she can start a business or expand her business. So it's very specific to the context. And one thing about being the UN is that because we have colleagues in the field in 31 countries, they know the specific context very well. So they're always working within the specific social context, political context, cultural context, and with the full participation of the government. Because I think a lot of people think these things can be done in a vacuum or by entrepreneurs or by NGOs, but without changing the government, without changing legal barriers, regulatory barriers, and without having government involved, it won't have as long lasting an impact. Sure. I, I'd like to switch gears for a moment and just focus uh, on you for a little bit and then to UNCDF. I'd love to hear about just a little bit about your trajectory and how your previous work life drove you to the work you're doing now with UNCDF? Sure. Well, I started out as a journalist. I studied international relations and English in college. And when I came out, I realized I wasn't really qualified for any specific kind of work. So I applied to a bunch of journalism jobs. And I got a great job in Anchorage, Alaska, at the Anchorage Daily News, which was the only newspaper in Alaska at that time. Go, go figure. Yeah. <laughs> so I was a metro reporting intern in the summer uh, after I graduated from college. So I covered bear attacks, forest fires, you know, local congressman had a heart attack. We did a graphic on the front page, the 4th of July parade, you know, school lunches, everything. And it was such a great experience because, yeah. you know, you're a beat reporter. You cover wha whatever's happening. You have to file your story by three and then it's in the paper the next day and then you write another one. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, then I worked at the Radio Free Europe in Prague. I'd been really interested in Central Europe and all the changes that had happened after the fall of communism. I was also very interested in Vaclav Havel and the movement with Samizdat where during communism, young people were taking texts that were written by intellectuals, poets, and playwrights, and taking them home and typing them out and creating these forbidden copies of intellectual texts and then sharing them amongst each other. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of spread in this movement for freedom. So I was lucky enough to work in Prague for close to a year at Radio Free Europe. And that was straight wire reporting, right? Pope visits Poland, forest fire in France, you know, very short, succinct. Uh, news updates that were being read every hour by broadcasters in 15 Central Asian languages. So that was terrific training for just how to be really short, you know, how to get the news out without any fluff and to write very, very lean copy that will then be used in a, in a lot of different ways across radio media. Then I worked at Newsweek in New York. This was kind of the end of the 90s, so mm -hmm. I was a very, very low-level intern, so I got the party beat. I covered fashion and tech and, you know, kind of silly things. So Those fun. are important things. I know, important Esther. things, important, important things. But in terms of, you know, 
Somalia was happening, Rwanda was happening. There were, there were a lot of issues that I wanted to talk about that were global in nature. And the job was very kind of focused on celebrities and had they been drinking or not drinking, and I, I didn't care so much. So I left there after a while, and then I actually went to drama school. I went to graduate school on a Fulbright Fellowship in South Africa and lived there for three years and was working as a journalist while I did that. So when I came back to the US, I was interested in both theater. I mean, I'd have always been interested in both theater and uh, international affairs, but I really thought I was going to be a theater director. Mm -hmm. So I had a day job at the Council on Foreign Relations, this very august institution, where we were writing explainer briefs about very critical foreign policy issues of the day. Sure. What's the difference between a Shiite and a Sunni? You know, Why are we in Iraq? What yeah. are we trying to accomplish there? And at night, I was directing plays in New York City. So I did that for a few years before I realized that I was unlikely to become a professional theater director. And also that you know a lot of things had changed in the world. And as much as I love theater and art, in the United States, it really feels like a luxury, right? It's mm -hmm. a luxury to be able to have a conversation in an artistic way when people are dying and starving and there's poverty. And uh, the 9-11 attacks had happened. You know, A lot of things had changed in the world. So it felt like it was important to be engaged with international movements that were really reshaping the world as we knew it. So I had the experience of being in the Foreign Service for 10 years, which was very interesting and sure. had a lot of ups and downs. And my last four years with the Foreign Service, I was posted here in New York at the U.S. Mission to the U.N., and I was on the team that negotiated the Sustainable Development Goals, which was a three-year negotiation with 193 countries. And I also happened to be the delegate who sat on the executive boards of all the U.N. multilateral aid agencies based here in New York, and I negotiated the U.N. resolutions governing how they behave and what their strategic goals should be. So I got a very close-up look at how the multinational development system works to help poor countries achieve better economic and social development. Okay. Just a couple more points. I want to talk about DFIs. Correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that Canada stood up their DFI last year, and I think the U.S. is working on standing theirs up this year. So how is that space evolving? How is it changing? And how will that impact our ability to achieve the SDGs? So development finance institutions, Thank so you. that's a national entity that a government sets up to use some of their money to achieve development outcomes, sometimes looking for a return, sometimes not looking for a return. I think it's very exciting that there's a move in uh, major donor countries to have development money that's more flexible and more creative. So what we've seen in the past is development finance institutions will have a mandate where they have to return a profit, like OPIC used to from the United States. So that means they have to do deals that are both big and safe, right? They have to return a certain amount of money to their treasuries so that they're not able to take a lot of risk because if they lose the money, then they won't get funded again. So we have found at UNCDF, because we work at a small local level, that those mandates do not help DFIs reach our target population. Doing big safe deals will not let you reach the last mile, will not help you reach the poorest person. It also doesn't help small businesses. It helps big businesses and real estate and government partnerships and things that are already quite established. So what we're trying to do is to pioneer models where we can convince the DFIs to take some of the money that they can be more creative with and take more risk with, blend it with maybe some grant money that they don't have to have any return on, and put that towards our portfolio of small ticket, small and medium enterprise, first-time entrepreneurs, poorest part of the poorest countries, in deals that we broker with local banks in those countries 
so that we are using aid money, that's grant, not looking for return, to de-risk different tranches of investment money. So a DFI might need a 2% return, and a commercial investor might need a 7% return, and grant money will need 0% return. So if you combine that in a new way, and you have different pockets of funding that need different returns, you can do deals that were not possible with only one type of that money. That is a fantastic way to end this inaugural podcast. I want to thank Esther Pan Sloan for coming in and offering fantastic insights. Again, the goal of this podcast is to enhance your understanding about what is happening in the intersection of economic development and global finance. And I think your insights were an excellent, excellent start in that regard. We want to thank everyone that is listening to this podcast, and we look forward to building a relationship with our listeners moving forward. Capital Musings is a production of the Partnerships Policy and Communications team at UNCDF. With that, we look forward to connecting soon, and thank you. Thank you.